Death by Incarceration presents, in association with Crawl Space Media, Injustice, a new wrongful conviction podcast with a focus on advocacy. Emmanuel Rios and Angel Rodriguez are each serving life sentences for the 1987 murder of Sean Nelson, despite the existence of evidence that could have cleared them had it not been withheld at their trial. Now that our production team has obtained that previously lost evidence, will it be enough to write an injustice of more than 30 years? It's crazy because there's a confession. (laughs) There's a confession. He did confess. It's recorded. It's on a tape. Injustice. Welcome to the first installment of Injustice, Romance and Murder on the Streets of Philadelphia. And right off the top, I want to address the fact that we put romance in the title of our podcast because it sounds good, but it's not, it's not romance like that. One of the key players in this story is named Romance MacArthur. And although he is an integral part of this story, this story is really about two men, Emmanuel Rios and Angel Rodriguez, who have been incarcerated since 1989. We are going to try not to jump around too much, but rather to do this in a chronological as possible order. Now, with that said, we are actually going to start two years after the actual crime. And we're going to do that because we're going to start with the prosecution's case, their version of events, and what happened the night that Sean Nelson was murdered. And as we do that, we will also hear from some family members of Emmanuel and Angel, and you will come to learn not only about what these guys are accused of doing, but more importantly, who they are and why this case is so important. You know, because there, there are a lot of people who have been locked up unjustly, and they all deserve to come home. But, Lisa, why is this case where we decided to, to start our podcast? Why, why this story? Why this case? I think the facts of Emmanuel Rios and Angel Rodriguez's case are just remarkable in every way. I think that culturally in Philadelphia, this is a time for a story like this to be told. And I hope that from doing our podcast and amplifying their voices, that this will be a starting point for them in terms of coming home. Now, that voice you hear is my co-host, Lisa Spees. Lisa is the director of Virginians for Judicial Reform and just a straight up badass Uh, She's one of the best in the business when it comes to wrongful conviction advocacy. Her record speaks for itself, and I am honored to share this space with her. She's going to make me look good. So what does it mean to be an advocate? Well, I think that there are all sorts of varying degrees in terms of being an advocate really for anything. Being an advocate could mean sharing posts on social media, signing a petition for someone. And then as you get further deep into a case, it it can be more of what I do. And the way I look at my advocacy is in terms of filling the gap. Whatever the holdup is with a case, whether it be someone needing a lawyer or a private investigator or funds to pay for those things, 
then that is what I try to do. If they already have a lawyer, sometimes it's DNA testing, finding the money for DNA testing. Sometimes it's some other expert witness analysis that should be done. And then once my clients do come home, then it turns into fundraising for them to rebuild their lives. So it doesn't just end for me when, when someone's released from prison. But there's all sorts of ways that someone can be an advocate. And, and all of those varying degrees are needed to propel this movement of justice. Yeah, you, so you don't, you don't have to be completely all in like you are to be considered an advocate or to advocate for the incarcerated. Absolutely not. I am a very all-in person. When I got involved in this, it grabbed a hold of me and it, it hasn't let me go. And so the way that I do it is my way, but everybody can have their own way of contributing towards these causes. My name is Spencer Daniels, and I am here to, I'm here to tell the story. My background coming into this is, is a, as a storyteller and how I approach it. My job is to hopefully make it relatable enough to, to people that you, you want to listen and you want to share it. You know, I, we want you to get mad. We want you to, to listen to the stories, to get fucking mad and, and want to do something about it. And let's get these guys some long overdue justice. My name is Maria Rios. I am Emmanuel Rios' daughter, his only child. I'm 33 years old. I have two daughters, a five-year-old and an 11-year-old. And I'm an owner of a home care agency. And I have an awesome, awesome relationship with my father, even though our bond has been built behind bars. We are really, really close. And I'm honestly only right now, like the only person that he has. My grandmother passed away in October of 2019. He has one other sibling who is also incarcerated. And I'm really excited that this is all going on and you guys are giving it your all to actually help my father. And when I met you guys, I can actually see that you guys have a lot of faith in him and his case. And I know you guys believe that my father's innocent. This is the most rhythm that my father has ever gotten on his case, ever. I remember being younger and my grandmother spending money on lawyers and for them just to read the paperwork, just to read it. As I got older, I also started working and I financially started helping my father as well with his case, paid the lawyer $5,000 to just read the paperwork, nothing. So this is a really, really big step for me in my life. And I'm pretty sure for my father as well. I was a year and a month old when my father got incarcerated. All my memories are in prisons, in, in the playrooms, in the prisons, even my daughters. My daughters have a great bond with my father as well and it's behind bars. The consistency of the visits, thankfully, my grandmother never failed her children at all. She always made sure she took me to visit my father weekly when he was closer. And as he got further, we would go bi-weekly. And the further he got, the time lessened. Then we would go monthly. But 
all my memories are with my father behind bars. So my name is Santa Pratt, but everybody calls me Santi and I'm Junior is my cousin. His mom and my dad are siblings. And I grew up with my father's side of the family. So Junior and I grew up in the same household um, with our grandma. I think I think you're the first person who's referred to him as Junior. Uh-huh. I'm not sure I ever made that connection. I, I for whatever he, reason. So his dad is Emmanuel Rios as well, so they called him Junior. But as he got older, everybody switched to June. But I think, like, his daughter is Little Mary to me, and she's, like, 30, 33 or 34. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I am the only one that calls him Junior. We've definitely heard a, a lot of different names for him, but, you know, Emmanuel, June, Cripple June, Junior. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot, of, lot of nicknames. Yeah. You said you, you grew up with that side of the family. How, how old were you when, when he went in? Um, well, I'm 42, so I, I can't even calculate how, how old I was, 12, 13, somewhere around there. So you probably, of, of all the people we've spoken to so far, have the most, actually the, the only memories of, of him when he was outside. Everybody else was two or, or, or one years old. Right, right, yeah. No, I do because we grew up in the same household. Our, our grandma raised both of us. Okay. And so what are, what are some of your earliest memories? Everything we're, you know, everything we're getting so far is these memories of him, his history while being in prison. So if you could give us sort of a little background of, of what he was like before that, that would be great. Um, Junior's like my brother. I have siblings on my mom and my dad's side but because we grew up in the same house I think of him as my older brother so growing up I looked up to him because you know he made sure that me and my grandmother who also was raising my younger brother all of us in this he made sure that we were okay my grandma never needed or wanted for anything and she lived on a fixed income I can remember 4th of July's on Darien Street and Junior buying a bunch of fireworks and lit up the block so like every every kid was like super excited because fireworks are expensive and he you know he made we had a big barbecue like those things that you know I think about and I remember of him he was always very he's always very giving and even to this day even him being in prison for so long that hasn't changed he's he's very giving he has a great heart. When his mom died, he wrote, um, he wanted to write a poem. Uh, look, I, you're getting me emotional. <laughs> he wrote a letter to his mom and asked me to read it at the services. And I, it, it was very hard. I couldn't read it because I would get in two sentences in and I'm crying. So it was, it was really hard, but I, I did it for his daughter's wedding. He he came up with this album idea with pictures from when she was born up until, you know, the last visit. It had photos. There was one photo of him and I 
while he when he was out. I was months old. There was a photo of me and my mother on my first birthday. She was holding my hand. And with that picture, he wrote underneath, here is a picture of you and your mother on your first birthday while she's holding your hand. And soon she'll be holding your hand to walk you down the aisle. And then pictures followed from there and every growth picture was in a prison. When I was three, when I was five, when I was 12, I think he was in Lewisburg. No, I think he was in Rockview at the time. And this was the only time I got to celebrate my father's birthday with him. So it was me, my two daughters, my stepdaughter. We went to go visit him and we all, I got shirts done for us that said happy birthday. And we sang happy birthday to him in the visiting room. So he included that picture as well. And he also wrote a page to me See, with every picture there was a saying or something underneath and then the page before the last page he just thanked me on just always being there for him and he really appreciates the bond that we have no matter how much time has gone by and then the very last page on the left-hand side, it said this next page is blank because the picture that's gonna be filled in there is when I walk out these doors. And he put, I can't wait. So that, of course, you know, that was very, very emotional. It just made me think like, of course I have faith and hope that that picture is gonna get filled, but there's still that what if it doesn't. And my 11-year-old, she's very advanced and mature, so she now understands. But my five-year-old, she doesn't understand. She has a lot of questions. And she'll call. My, my, my father will call, and she's like, well, why, why can't you come play with me here at my house? Why can't you come see me? Or can I bake a cake for you? And my dad's like, yeah. And she's like, well, when? And my dad doesn't have an answer. It's sad, it's sad, but I see I see the relationship my daughters have with him reminds me of me when I was younger because my grandmom always made sure that I was in contact with my father and I'm gonna always make sure here and there, wherever, he's always gonna be a part of my daughter's lives. Yes, this is very emotional and it's very emotional, but I've cried so much about this that I have no more tears in me left. I, I, I wanna cry when I get the news that he's coming home. That, that's when I'll cry. That's when I'll cry. You know, Junior never denied his wrongs, you know? And I think that because of the background, he's being judged and not given a fair chance. So if I can take anything away, it's his background. Remove those prior cases. Remove those things that that he did his time for, that he's not denying, that he admitted to. Like, remove that out the way. And then give him a fair chance. Because if you remove that, you're not you're not looking, you're not looking at June who's innocent for this. You're looking at June who did all of this and now is saying you did this, but you didn't do this. 
No, take that away. Take it away and give him a fair chance. He's not who you think he is. He is innocent and he deserves a chance. Both of them. Spanky does too. They both deserve a chance. They spent all their years in prison over something that neither one of them did. Romance. Stop being a coward and come forward. You know, play your part. Do do what's right. And I love them both. And I know one day they will be out here. We'll pick it up on the other side of this break as we listen to a word from today's sponsors. Lisa, we, we obviously have our thoughts going in. We, you know, we know all of the details already. So with, without giving anything away, what would you say is our goal with doing this podcast? I would say that we want people, our listeners, to know the case of Emmanuel and Angel. I would say that we do have our own opinions, but I hope that, well, everyone after listening to the podcast will have their opinions of the case too. And I hope that people will follow our calls to action to pursue justice, whatever they feel that justice is in this case. If you listened to the death by incarceration episode that they did on this case, you know, you already know the basics that Emmanuel Rios, who you will hear referred to throughout as June and Angel Rodriguez, also known as Spanky, are currently in prison serving life sentences for the murder of Sean Nelson. And as Kevin stated in that episode, and we want to reiterate here, Sean Nelson is the victim of a crime. Now, other, other victims have come out of this in the aftermath, but ultimately a 15-year-old boy was killed in the early morning hours of September 7, 1987. And we... We don't want to minimize that. So as we get into this, our this, this first episode, we'll mainly start with an introduction to the men. We'll start to look at what was presented by the prosecution, uh, some kind of obvious holes in their case. We'll touch on the prosecutor, District Attorney Roger King, the story he was able to get a jury to believe. In later episodes, we will dig more into witness testimony, a broken, if not dirty, justice system that goes all the way from cops to the prosecuting district attorney to a defense attorney turned witness who, as it happens, is running for office in the city of Philadelphia. And we'll get into all that. So speaking of Philadelphia, tell me tell me about the criminal justice system there, like both at, at the time that this this all happened back in the, the mid to late 80s and where it stands today. So the culture in Philadelphia in terms of criminal justice reform and the DA's office has been corrupted for more than 35 years. The prosecutor in this case, Roger King, is notorious for wrongful convictions, for taking files and never returning them, for creating facts, for disregarding tested forensic evidence in cases. More than seven of his cases have since been vacated, overturned. People have come home, including my friend Jimmy Dennis, who spent 25 years on death row. So that went on for a very long time. And and that wasn't just by Roger King. That was by a lot of prosecutors at the time. Now in Philadelphia, it's starting to shift. 
And there is a DA there, Larry Krasner, that cares very much about truth and justice and fixing disparity issues and all sorts of things. And as an advocate that cares very much about these things, it's really a beautiful thing to see. Larry Krasner's administration has vacated, uh, I believe it's 20 people, it might be 21 now. So he's doing the work. He's only been in office since 2018. I can't wait to see where they're at four years from now. Even one year from now, I can't wait to see how many families have been reunited because of the work that he and Patricia Cummings and the Conviction Integrity Unit are doing there. So it is shifting and, and they're facing a lot of uh, blowback from the Fraternal Order of Police and all sorts of people who don't want that system to change. So it's not been easy for them and, and yet they're still prevailing. Okay, so my name is Christina. They call me Goldin. I'm 26 years old and I am one of six nieces and nephews of Spanky. I'm the oldest. I mean, even while he's in there, he still, you know, wants to take care of his mother, which is my grandmother. Is It's always been his thing. Like, you know, before he was incarcerated, anything, he always wanted to take care of his family. And that's something that he is still trying to do while in there, knowing that we know that he needs our help, but he's in there and he's like, you know, you guys need me. So, you know, and everything in his power, he does, he tries to help us out here when knowing that we should be helping him in there. But I know for a fact that they're both innocent and they're, they're trying to come home to their family. Like both sides of the family have suffered greatly. So it, it'll be a good thing, you know, once all this is done and over and hopefully it goes the way as planned and, you know, our family, his family, you know, will be put back together because this tore them apart. And I grew up in this family, so it's like I see how much it bothered them or, you know, it took away from them because certain situations that everyone has probably would have been differently if he was still out here. To romance, I want to say, if you were in my shoes, you would, you don't understand what we've been through. You don't understand what, you know, you put his daughter through, his mother through, his sisters growing up. I just want you to step up and do the right thing. Go in, tell the truth, and there's no animosity, there's no hate against you or anything like that, but do the right thing because now he's been sitting in there for 30 plus years that he could have been enjoying his family, you know, his daughter, his grandkids. Just do the right thing. And to my uncle, Spanky, I want to say we love you, we appreciate you, and we're going to continue to fight for you. You know, we're here for you. So the two guys we're talking about, June and Spanky, they were no angels. This was the mid-80s, the badlands of North Philadelphia. It's a rough side of town. Eighth and Butler. Spanky and June pretty much controlled the drug trade on that block. They were the head of what was called the Blue Tape Gang, named so due to the fact that they put, they put a piece of blue tape on their little plastic drug baggies. And the dynamic breaks down like this. So Spanky and June run the block. Romance is, I guess, what you would consider a mid-level dealer under them. And Sean is a street dealer below Romance. And they, you know, they all did some bad stuff that they have, they have freely admitted to. So do you want to talk about that? I mean, obviously there, there will be preconceived notions going into a case. The prosecution will always be familiar with the defendant's past. 
how much should that history be used against them? Because it, it sounds like these guys were, were doomed from the start. I would agree with that. Obviously, if someone has committed criminal acts, that's always going to be used against them in a court of law. However, that can't be the whole case against somebody. That can't be the main thing that taints a jury's opinion and makes them dislike a defendant or two defendants in this case. Just because they did these things over here, which by the way, they've admitted to, and they've held themselves to account, and they've been held by account by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, does not mean that they had anything to do with the murder of Sean Nelson. Roger King is known for making the jury hate defendants, using anything he can, whether it be prior criminal acts, character issues, anything like that against them, because his case lacks merit. There are too many holes. There's no evidence. It hinges on one witness, whatever the facts may be specifically with that case. But he's done this time after time after time. And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, they were drug dealers and they've done some terrible things, but they admit to all of that. And they've served an incredibly long time in prison already. And they're there now for something I don't believe they did. Yeah. And, and clearly they were they were targeted by the police and the D.A. King. King went to great lengths to portray June in particular as a, a millionaire drug lord, and that, that comes up over and over. Yeah, and I think what you're saying is true, and you know more about King's past beyond just this case. When the case lacks substance is really when King would shine because you have to dazzle them with something else, with these, with these great stories of, of really painting... A picture, and that's what the the whole case is based on. And, and it's a, a term that that I've heard you use. He would take the jury to church. King was a skillful orator. He had a way of making you feel a part of something and wanting you to get these people off the streets. I've heard him refer to defendants as mad dog killers. Not in sorrow, but in scorn. And that scorn being, and you should stand up and look at him and look at him for the despicable human being that he is, the mad dog that he is, and say, for what you did, why you did it, how you did it, for what you did, you should die. And those are in cases with with no physical evidence or with physical evidence that he manufactured. So, yeah, if, you know, a jury comes in and they're automatically going to give deference to a prosecutor because you believe that the prosecutor is there to help you and, and keep our streets clean and all of this stuff. But with King, it was never about the truth. It was about him coming up with a story that could grip you and selling that story to the jury. And that's exactly what he did in this case. Hi, my name is Diana Carcano. I'm one of um, Angel Rodriguez Spanky's sisters of four. What else can I say? Um, Spanky is my older brother and is one of my best siblings to me. The only thing that I ask and pray for is that my brother makes it out before my mom dies because she will not die in peace. You understand? 
she would die with that heartbroken. She would, my mom would, my mom wouldn't hurt. So would he. He will hurt, but not as much. But my mom is going to take that burden with her that I don't want her to be like that. I would like her to go in peace. Other than that, it's my mom, him, and whoever want to come along. If he's coming, if they coming along, I'm, my girls are already more or less raised. They big. They could start doing their life. I could go with him. And if he want to start a business, we starting a business. It's all how he approaches when he comes out. But I know that he will with in a positive attitude. Because one thing I don't see of him when I do talk to a lot of people that come out of prison, like they stuck in time. You understand? There's people sometimes that you talk to, but they're still talking about 1987, 1990, 19- That's all they know. Like they don't know how to talk about nothing else. You understand? Like, that's where their brain go. My brother's not there yet. You understand? I know my brother's not there yet. Because when we talk, we don't talk about our past. We talk about our future. Like, what to go forward to. You understand? What's good? Like, he gives us, he gave us so much information for my girls when he was in there for them to be knowledgeable as well as turn things out here. Like I told you, even though he was in there, he's also been present in our lives. I love my brother, and I hope that he has his freedom. He deserves his freedom. Yeah, the picture that he painted in in this case, in his version of events, Sean had gone rogue from the Blue Tape Gang. He had gone independent, and he was selling his own drugs in the Blue Tape's territory. So to send a message to anyone else thinking about doing that, about crossing them, Romance was recruited to be the guy to kill Sean. On the date of the murder, Emmanuel Rios calls MacArthur, told him to meet him downtown, which he did. Rodriguez and Rios arrive in a van driven by Rodriguez. They pick MacArthur up. They drive down to 9th and Butler, where where they see Sean sitting on the steps of a drugstore. They stop. Rios exits the vehicle greets Nelson with a hug. They're, you know, everybody's friendly. They both get into the van. And as they start driving, at some point, Rios begins holding Sean down in the back of the van. And they drive a mile or two out to Juniata Park, Snake Hill Road. Rodriguez, still inside the van, comes to the back, pulls Sean out the back door, where about half of his body is sticking out. Rodriguez fires a single shot through Nelson's head with a 25 caliber gun, throws his body out into the street. They drive away now with Rios behind the wheel. That's it. That is the entire case of the prosecution. That is the story that Roger King was able to get a jury to believe. Now, there are... There are a number of problems with the state's case, and we'll we'll get to all of them. There was one witness, Romance MacArthur, who, by the way, pled guilty to this murder. He pled to third degree for his part, which consisted, I guess, of, of holding the door open to facilitate this. So he testified against Rios and Rodriguez. MacArthur served his time. He He's out. He's out on the street living his life now. But he testified in open court that it happened just like that. And it's just, it's an absolute fabrication. 
Lisa, what what are your thoughts on the prosecution's case? It's a fictional story. He made it up. He created a story where he could use the witness romance to tie up the whole thing. The problem with it is, is that he ignores physical evidence. He ignores a timeline that just does not fit. He ignores an autopsy report, which we'll talk more about later, that it just doesn't work the way he describes this murder happened and how Sean Nelson was shot and killed. You know, it's a great story, but there's no meat there. there there's nothing to back any of this up outside of Romance MacArthur, who took, who, who threw these two men under the bus when he was facing a life sentence for another crime. So he had his own reasons for, for wanting to do these things or possibly wanting to do these things as we get into it further. Yeah, we got a, we've got a lot of stuff that is going to come up in that regard. So there, there's, there are certain things that we can't do over the course of this podcast. We can't just in regards to this case that they've presented so far. We can't speak in absolutes. We can't unequivocally say whether Nelson's murder was malicious and intentional or accidental. We can't say Nelson was or wasn't killed at the direction of another person, whoever that could be. There's there's lots that we can't say, but what, what we can say is that the murder did not happen the way that Romance MacArthur testified, the way D.A. Roger King presented it, and the way that a jury ruled on it. It just, it just could not have happened that way. I think that in episodes going forward we're going to get a lot more into the technical stuff but i but i think as far as painting a picture of of the men of kind of getting a personal account of who they are laying the foundation of what this case is about at least the the prosecution's side of it i think that's a good place to wrap it up one one thing i do want to get into real quick is some numbers 2.4 million as the number of incarcerated people in the United States. The United States leads the world in incarcerations over every other country, and it's not even close. 25% of the world's prison population is incarcerated in the United States. And with numbers like that can lead to this next one, which is a little bit harder to extrapolate, but between 2 and 10%. That's innocent people incarcerated in the United States alone. Two to 10 is a wide margin, but that's on the low end, 48,000. And on the high end, 240,000 innocent people locked up. Same number, unsolved crimes. Same number, guilty people walking around on the street. Not saying this to try to spook anyone, not trying to make you afraid of your neighbor. This is, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, this should make you fucking mad, these numbers. Here's another one. 33. That's how many years June and Spanky have been locked up for a crime they didn't commit. That makes me mad. We need you to get involved. At the end of every episode, we will present you with a specific call to action. Something you can do to be a better ally. For now, for episode one, share. Share this podcast. Share it on your social media. Share the story of June and Spanky. Share it with your friends. 
make a friend mad today. 33 years is long enough. That's it. That's the episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, We hope you like the show. If you do, please subscribe, rate, review, give us a five-star review. Even if you think this episode is a 4.5, round up. Give us a five. Leave us a good review. The more ratings and reviews we get boosts the algorithm, pushes us further up on the page of iTunes or Spotify or Google Podcast or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Injustice Podcast is brought to you in association with Death by Incarceration. Thank you to Crawlspace Media. Sound design, audio post-production, Jason Usry. Special thanks for original music to Bernaldo Rivaldi. Check out all his great stuff on iTunes and Spotify, Bandcamp, wherever you get your music. Please support independent artists. Right now is a, a real tough time for creatives. Go to InjusticePod.com for more information, including what are the great podcasts we are listening to. You can also find information to contact the hosts directly there. General inquiries can go to info at InjusticePod.com. Thank you for listening. This has been an Injustice production. Thank you.